You're listening to Slice of Cheese with Jenny Linford on Food FM. Savour the crunch of Peter's Yard sourdough crackers. Available at Waitrose, Sainsbury's, Ocado, Amazon, petersyard.com and specialist food retailers. To find out more about Food FM and our content, go to foodfmradio.com. Hello, welcome to A Slice of Cheese, the Food FM radio series that celebrates the world of cheese. I'm Jenny Linford, a food writer and cheese enthusiast, the author of Great British Cheeses. Cheese is a delicious and fascinating food, and we're setting out to explore this remarkable food and share the stories of the people who make, sell and love it. This week on A Slice of Cheese, we look at sheep's milk or ewe's milk cheeses. We talk to cheesemakers Stephen Fletcher of Ram Hall, who makes Burkeswell, Anne Wigmore of Village Maid, Selina Kens of Errington Cheese in Scotland, and Ben Harris of Ticklemore Cheese Dairy. We also speak to Stefano Vallabona of Vallabona, who tells us about Italy's rich pecorino tradition. Online, on smart speakers, and on Listen Again, this is Food FM. Savour the crunch of Peter's Yard sourdough crackers. Available at Waitrose, Sainsbury's, Ocado, Amazon, petersyard.com and specialist food retailers. Very happy to have with me today Stephen Fletcher of Ram Hall Farm, who is a maker of Burkeswell cheese. Hello, Stephen. Hi. Thank you for coming on the show. I, I wanted you on this show because you're such a sort of early example of of a sheep's cheese in Britain, you know, in, in if we're thinking of the sort of British cheese renaissance. Mm-hmm. When did you start making Burkeswell? 1989 was the first. We started milking the sheep in January 1989, and then it was purely in response to a request from a farm shop that we were supplying liquid milk to. The, their goat's cheese lady was backing up, and um, the lady that ran the shop said, would we have a go at making some cheese for her? And that's that's how it started. Although Ram, the cheese was made at Ram Hall many generations ago, we've got the evidence to prove that yeah, there was cheese made here um, in the, sort of the traditional Warwickshire style of making it in the downstairs dairy and then maturing it in a southwesterly facing upper room. Wonderful. Isn't that brilliant? So you were a sheep farmer, so you were, and then who then got into cheese making. Is that how it no, goes? Well, no, we, we were dairy farmers. We've been here a long time. Um, we've always milked cows and... Uh, Oh, we were. It, the writing was on the wall for the small dairy herd. I mean, and you know, we we were tenants on the Berkshire estate here, and we were milking about seventy cows. And uh, it was already becoming apparent that you know the way the dairy industry was headed was is was for larger scale production. Um, we needed to reinvest if we were going to do that, and we just felt it wasn't really on. Mm-hmm. So we were looking around at. Well, I was looking around at something. You know. Different, not necessarily different, but to add on to what we were already doing. And um, I'd always been interested in milk production. I'd kept a few sheep, quite like keeping sheep. So the two sort of ended up being sort of you know, married together. Kept milking cows for five years. Up, so we were milking cows and sheep um, for five years. We, we went out of cows in 1995. And how, and did you start sort of small scale with the sheep? How many sheep yeah, did you get initially? Yeah, we started with, I think the first morning was I milked 36. It took me four hours to milk 36 sheep. <laughs> and I thought, oh my goodness, what have I let myself in for? You know, I thought, this is ridiculous. And my, my, yeah, when it came to eating my breakfast at God knows what time, it was a, it was just a, like a shriveled offering on the plate. <laughs> but um, yeah, that's how. Yeah, we started, but we had to sort of commit fairly heavily with equipment, I and mean, we had to build ourselves a milking parlour and and whatnot. Um, mm. You know, and a little dairy, just. To, to put the bulk tank in, and as I said, you know, we, we didn't really have. It was very difficult then. I mean, the, the world was a very different place in 1989 as it is now. To it is now with the, you know, there were no there were no farmers markets, for example, and the, the you mentioned the Renaissance. Well, that was only really just getting going. There, there yes. weren't really any TV chefs to speak of then, and yeah, it was really hard to have a relatively new idea. I have to be perfectly honest with you if i knew then what i know now i think i probably would have kept the cows perhaps changed the breed of the cows and made a cow's milk cheese i think we would have got into the market 30 odd years ago with a cow's milk cheese far far easier than we would have say now too late um, yeah yeah exactly <laughs> yes, yeah we are were, yeah yes, um, well, but then we, you know, we, we, yes, we didn't have yeah. any intention of, I, cheese wasn't on the radar so i wouldn't have even considered that option um yeah but I say, so how I mean, did you Set about making cheese, Stephen. It's not that simple, really. Well, no, we um, we didn't have a clue, really. Uh, fortunately, there was a, a neighbour dairy farmer. She had studied college and part of her college course was cheese making. 
And I rang her up and said, you know, do you fancy having a go? And she said, yeah, actually I would. You know, um, sheep's milk is not supposed to be a nice medium for making cheese. I'd not not used sheep's milk before. I'd really like to have a go. So she came round with a little plastic two-gallon churn and took a bit of milk away, um, threw the cat out of her mother's kitchen, put a pot on the stove, <laughs> put a headscarf on, got her college notes out and had a go. And we made one relatively small cylindrical shaped hard cheese which we, there's a cellar under the house here uh and we've shoved it in the cellar and sort of prodded it and looked at it and you know then we sort of took Sally's advice where when 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 do you think it'd be mature enough and this that and the other and we we cut it it was very dry but it was mm-hmm. it was okay um and so she made some soft cheeses as well which we know Sally no longer make but um then my mother decided she wanted to go on a cheese making course so she went to Otley College near Ipswich and was taught by Helen Douglas, who sadly is no longer with us, but she was the um, the main uh, spark behind the way we do it now. I mean, mum right. went away. It, she was actually working with goat's milk cheese, but she basically brought the um, the technique back with her. Mm-hmm. And um, so the two of them got together, and, the, and so the two separate skill sets ended up creating Burke. I mean, Burke's always different now to when it started. I mean, it, it, I'm it sure it must have been similar. It, it was a similar yeah. shape. It, it, it looked very similar, but... Um, no, as regards to flavour and texture and whatnot, and of course, obviously, our, you know, our, our knowledge. Um, yes. Uh, yeah, it's a very different cheese. It, it oh, we should yes. talk about the shape, that distinctive shape. Tell me the reason behind the shape of books. Well, simple. Um, the technique that Mum learnt when she went on her course was using plastic vegetable um, calendars, and uh, because basically they were cheap and readily available, and you know, it was a, it was a course on making cheese on a small scale. Um, and that's how it happened. And uh, so we used to buy colinders from a direct from a manufacturer who was supplying one of the um, the multiples, and uh, they stopped. And then it coincided really with the kitchen colander becoming much more of a uh, an ornament in the kitchen. Mm. You know, you could get fancy metal and animal ones. You could yes. get all sorts. You could not get a bog standard plastic white colander. <laughs> and so I looked around on the on the internet and ended up on the dollar shop online. I thought, well give it a go I bet they won't even reply to me well they did they said yeah we they told me who manufactured them and so I contacted this uh, molding company in Illinois in the States they actually agreed to send me some samples free of charge which I was quite surprised at amazing uh, and then we ended up ordering 2000 and we imported them ourselves it's quite interesting really organizing the courier and you know all the paperwork and whatnot and um, yeah that was some we've still got some I mean obviously uh, they, they wear out they crack and whatnot yes, so we have to keep do. replacing yes. them yeah. Um, that was some years ago now. And, uh, That's yeah, we're brilliant. Up, we're down it's a very sort of... distinctive shape. It looks, you know, sort of almost like a flying saucer. It's yeah, very... well, a lot of people do yeah. call it a flying saucer. There's actually um, a, a cheese shop in Paris who just love Burkeswell and they have set several graphics up with Burkeswell as a flying saucer. They've got a, a, a load of Burkeswells <laughs> flying around the Eiffel Tower, Eiffel Tower, I should say. Wow. They've got about three or four different things. It all focuses around Burkeswell being a flying saucer. Yeah, it's, it, it's, uh, it's good. Wonderful. Yeah, it, it's just a good way of describing it, really. That's brilliant. And we should talk about what Burkeswell is like. I mean, you know, people do compare it to Manchego, Stephen, don't they? Tell, tell me about, you know, what's, tell me about its Text, the age, the texture, the flavour. Tell me about uh, that. We mature to between four and six months. And texture-wise, um, it does vary a little bit through the season because obviously we are, it's a single-flock milk, so a, a single-flock cheese, I should say. So only the milk we produce here on the farm is made into Burkeswell. So there's a degree of seasonality in both the level of production and the nature of the milk um, because obviously there's ewes lambing uh, in the winter and are indoors for some of their lactation and they get turned out to grass. The spring lambers make nearly all of their milk from grass. Um, so, but yeah, it's a fairly ivory um, sort of paste. It, it's reasonably, I wouldn't call it hard. It's, no. it's semi-hard and hard. It, it's a difficult yeah. one to, to, to place really. Um, and texture-wise, yeah, I mean, people say to me, was it like a cheddar? Well, mm, yes and <laughs> no. It's a difficult one. I think at the end of the day, what I would say is, you know, it, it is what it is. Uh, and and people, you don't hear people saying Manchego is like Burkeswell. So yeah, yes, <laughs> yeah. Like I think it's just that. I think it's just that sort of sheep's cheese. Yeah, analogy. I, it's there is more a sort like of a, nutty flavour, isn't there? Yes, I think it's probably yeah. closer to a Manchego than it's Pecorino. I think. Um, yeah, although having said that, having yeah. said that, in certain times, no, actually, I'll, I'll, I'll Don't withdraw that. I'll say in certain yeah. times of the year it's like a pecorino, and other times of the year it's like a manchego. I think that'd be fair. Okay, well that's you interesting. Yeah. And it's and it's raw raw milk that you're raw using. Raw milk, yeah. yeah, yeah. 
And I know you're, you know, we spoke last year, you know, which was a very tough time, obviously, for yeah. cheese producers, cheese makers, because of, you know, the hospitality lockdown. Mm-hmm. And that you said to me, you know, really firmly, you said, Jenny, I'm not going to throw away any of my milk. No. You were, that was, I'm, I'm guessing that you didn't have to no. do that then. No. Um, yeah. No, we, um, we fed milk to lambs. Um, because unfortunately we we got quite a lot of lambs about at the time, and we just yeah we just worked through it. Um, from past experience, when, when the economic crash hit in two thousand and where are we eight wasn't it eight nine? Mm. Um, mm-hmm. We eased back a bit, which was a mistake. Um, so we uh, we made with as much as we could with the staff had available because two three of the ladies we had um, had to go. Uh, when they, and when they shut the schools, they got young right, children, so yes. they had to go on furlough to look after their kids. Right. Yep. Um, so we were left with Julie, her daughter, and uh, another young lady that um, hadn't long started working for us. Uh, and they were just Trojans. They really were. Um, and they just, you know, they just slogged their way through it. And uh, we sort of, you know, we did what we could to sort of manage the milk production on our side of things to, you know, make it all work. Yeah. Um, but it was, yeah, it was, the three of them shifted a lot of work. And, um, yeah, we, we've, you know, thankfully we've got cheese on the shelf still to sell. Yeah, good. And things, you know, obviously things are picking up, you know, restaurants open again and yeah. demands increasing. It, 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 it's erratic, though. Um, yeah. We found that, you know, I think some restaurants are saying, no, we can't afford to open until we've got, we can, you know, um, seat everybody. Mm. Uh, because obviously, you know, it, it costs the same amount of money to, to run a restaurant whether it's half full or full. Yes, of course. Um, yep. And some, yeah, we, we've noticed that one or two of our principal customers, uh, customers who are principally supplying food service, um, started to pick up as the 21st of June got close. So then when it was announced that that wasn't going to be the day, it dipped off again. But, uh, yeah, oh, I don't know. I, I, I've given up trying to predict what's going to happen, to be honest with well, you, Jenny. I quite just sensible, Stephen. We're just, yes. just going to just... T- t- Take yeah. it as it comes, you know. I mean, I think I suppose um, the joy is, you, at least it's not a fresh cheese, isn't it? You, you know, it, it can mature and it can... We, we can, yeah. yeah. We, we've got a huge amount of flexibility. I'm very thankful that we aren't reliant on a, a soft cheese. Um, yeah. Yeah, but having said that, you know, we are reliant on one single cheese and um, that has, you know, that's, that's been not been easy at times. Um, yes, it's been, a, you know. it's been a very tough time. You told me a lovely way... To, to to cook with Burtswell, actually. Well, the most simple way yes. is, is to make, well, make it into a biscuit, grate it onto some parchment and then grill it a little bit like Parmesan biscuits, yeah. but use Burtswell instead. And um, we actually take those to shows with us. This, the most common comment is, oh, it's just like the bit you scrape off the edge of the pan you know, <laughs> when, when you've done a done something with cheese. And yes. um, yeah, it is. It is. It's, it does make a very nice... It's um, a lovely you, nibble. It's so quick and easy because there's yeah, no you can mixing, them you know. And, yeah, yeah, make them almost like, make, like crisps. Or um, yep. what my mother has done in the past, she's actually made a little starter out of it. She's layered biscuits with rock, uh, rocket and um, various little bits of salad. And... Uh, that makes quite a nice starter. Or another thing that we, we do with it, you can. Um, my daughter, actually, my middle daughter, Jo, she's a prolific cook. And on our Instagram and site and our website, uh, there's lots of different dishes. That, and she has either invented them or she has adapted existing recipes. Mm. And um, it's really nice, just simple. On a shepherd's pie, for example, you grate birch on the top. It doesn't melt in like a, a other hard cheese. It, it crisps. And so you've got a little bit crispy. That's top, nice. You know? Oh, I'll try that. Yeah. Good, good. I got yeah. some butter on the fridge. Uh, Lovely. Okay, I've good. now made myself hungry. <laughs> so, <Yeah. laughs> yes. And um, listen, Stephen, thank you. It was so lovely. Thank you for taking the time. Okay. It was really lovely to have you on the show. Thank you. Take care. Bye, thank Stephen. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye bye. I'm a huge fan of Peter's Yard's crackers, and they go beautifully with cheese. All Peter's Yard's crackers are made in small batches using quality natural ingredients and their sourdough starter slowly fermented for 16 hours for award-winning flavour and crunch. Visit petersyard.com forward slash shop, enter the code slice of cheese at the checkout to receive 25% off your first order. Online, on smart speakers and on Listen Again, this is Food FM. Savour the crunch of Peters Yard sourdough crackers. Available at Waitrose, Sainsbury's, Ocado, Amazon, petersyard.com and specialist food retailers. Before we go on exploring the world of cheese, here's news of another Food FM programme that I think you'd really enjoy. 
Thank you, Jenny. Well, I'm David, the host of The Drinking Hour here on Food FM. Each week, we explore the wonderful world of wine, spirits, and beer, all things that make wonderful pairings with cheese, of course. We hear from those for whom making drinks is a passion. So after your cheese course, how about you join me for a few drinks? You can find The Drinking Hour with David Kermode on your usual podcast platform and at foodfmradio.com. Now it's back to Jenny and a slice of cheese. This week's A Slice of Cheese is looking at used milk cheese. And it's wonderful to have with me a very early pioneer of sheep's cheese in Britain, Anne Wigmore of Village Made Cheese. Good morning, Anne. Hello. Lovely to have you. And Anne, I was just, tell us about how you started, because it's such sort of early days in, in Britain's, you know, <laughs> sort of now thriving cheese scene. When did it you was, get going? Yeah. Um, it was 35 years ago now, so 1986. Um, and I had been working at the Dairy Research Institute in Shinfield for a number of years in various departments, microbiology, and then transferred to the dairy, the cheese making dairy. And that was really where I learned to make cheese. But it was sort of experimental cheeses and they were doing various um, experiments with trying to accelerate the ripening of cheese, which uh, was a little <laughs> bit artificial and not, not, not particularly nice. And didn't turn out to be very nice cheese either. But it gave me a good grounding in, in cheese making and experimenting with it. And is that, so that's where you got your insights and actually made you want to make cheese then? It did, mainly, um, I think we, we went to visit Charles Martel, uh, who makes Stinking Bishop, as you know, and mm. uh, because he, he was having some problems at the time. And so we sort of visited him to take some samples and uh, take it back to the lab. And uh, yeah, it just fascinated me seeing these little small productions. I'd never really seen a small cheesemaker. <laughs> and Charles is such a charismatic man, isn't he? And he was yes. so, like, another great pioneer, you know, wonderful man in yes. sort of reviving and creating British cheeses again. Um, yeah, and so so we're, this morning we're looking at sheep's milk cheese. You know, if you think of British cheeses, we tend to think of them as cow's milk cheese, we think of cheddar or Stilton. Yeah. What made you go down the sheep's milk route or use milk? Well, we didn't obviously didn't have a farm or any milk of our own as supply milk of our own so we had to rely on uh, somebody else's milk and because we were so small I literally was I had a little old vat cheese vat that was uh, took 20 litres of milk I think initially um, or I think it was 50 litres but I only put 20 litres in it of course I, I couldn't buy cow's milk and all the farms at that point were contracted out to the milk marketing board they weren't right. allowed to sell any of their milk just to other people out of their contracts so, gosh we forget that right I that's know. interesting yeah yeah, yeah. So, um, so sheep's milk, obviously, yeah, they were just little independent farmers and they were all very happy to, to supply us. And we just returned, Andy and I just returned from a, a sailing trip around Europe and we visited Sardinia and tasted the um, Pecorino Sardo and just mm. thought, oh, that is such a lovely cheese. I'd love mm -hmm. to make that. So as soon as we could uh, get hold of some sheep's milk, that was what we set out to do. And um, we were living in Spencer's Wood then, the village just down the road from where we are now. And so we called the cheese Spenwood, and that's still going now as our, our main cheese, really. Wonderful. And so what, it is a sort of Pecorino Sardo style then? I'd like to think that. <laughs> it's, we've been perfecting it for 35 years, and I think we still tweak it now and again, and we're, we're getting the age on it now, which is uh, definitely uh, better. It's, it's a, a much nicer flavour. And um, somebody said the other day, one of our customers, a big customer actually, said uh, if there was one cheese in the world that stopped being made, uh, if, if it was Spenwood that, that stopped being made, we couldn't. We couldn't get a, a, another cheese that was exactly the same as that. So that was, that oh, was nice to know. That's a compliment, <laughs> isn't it? It that was, really yeah. yeah. Very special. And what, I'm just interested, because, you know, you're making it sound quite easy, Anne, but I'm guessing, I mean, what was it like trying to find customers for your, you know, for your cheese? Did you find a receptive audience? Because, again, a little bit used milk cheese was very un unusual then did you find people willing to try it um it was a little bit more difficult i mean we we, we didn't really have farmers markets then it was more craft fairs back then that we were mm. able to set up little stalls and uh, and sell our cheese and we we did make um, a soft fresh cow's milk cheese that we just just bought from a, a little a local dairy like pasteurized cow's milk and it was sort of like um soft garlic and herb cheeses in little pots mm -hmm. and things like that and uh, and they sort of yeah they sold quite easily because um, there was roulade and cheeses like that that they could relate like to. But, yes. But then when we said oh, you know, and and then there's the sheep's milk cheese and a lot of people said 
Oh, I didn't know you could milk sheep. <laughs> wow, that is interesting. That was isn't it? very, yeah, yes. back then that yeah. was very much. And uh, and then oh, I don't know. And then you'd say, well, have you ever had Roquefort? Because that was the only real sort of sheep's milk cheese that people tended to know of then. Mm. But they didn't realise that it was sheep's milk either. <laughs> so it made no difference. <laughs> yes. Well, yeah. What's the point of that? Yes. <laughs> yeah. How interesting. But I mean, obviously yeah. things have. Ch- I mean, but you were you found an audience, didn't you? And. Um, and tell me about yes, the other sheep's really. cheeses that you make nowadays. So you've got Spenwood, which is a, a hard cheese. What are, what are the other? You, you used to make a much softer one, didn't you? Yes, Wigmore. Yeah, Wigmore mm. is the other soft cheese, which came along probably about four or five years after Spenwood. James Aldridge, who was, um, again, you know, a real pioneer in, in good British artisan cheeses, was uh, one of the first or only affineurs of cheese. So he matured the cheeses on from mm. cheesemakers like ourselves, which was great for us because we only had such a small premise. We didn't have maturing facilities. Yeah. And um, and so he sort of, I suppose, yeah, it was really before um, before Wigmore even was, was one that he called Rook's Nest. We used to make it in sort of like a rounded uh, shape mold and he would take it away and I think he sort of washed the rind or, or smoked it he, he did various things to the cheeses but that was really how we kind of developed it was sort of through through him wanting different cheeses and also Neil yeah. Jard Neil Jard Dairy in London they were taking our spinwood and they wanted um uh, a white or, or they said you know there wasn't then a white rinded sheep's milk cheese british sheep's milk oh, cheese so interesting. if we if we had a go at it um we you know they'd be willing to just try it and sell it in the shop and see how it went so over i don't know months maybe a year we tried different sort of recipes and they took it away and trialed it in the shop and they sort of came back with uh, when we did the recipe that, that we then had for wigmore um, they said, yeah, that's the one. If you can make that one, we can sell lots of that. <laughs> oh, good, good. Yes, we wouldn't have called it Wigmore, I don't think. I don't think we would have called it our own name, but they just were calling it that in the shop because it was cheeses that came from us. Um, and it just sort of stuck, really, that name. You mean you're not really vain? I was like... <laughs> <laughs> no, <laughs> not at all. <laughs> so, yes, oh, my cheese. Well, I think it must be very exciting to have a lovely cheese named after you. Um, it is now, satisfaction. yes. Yes. <laughs> I mean, it's wonderful that you talk about James Aldrich because he was, you know, he seems to have been such a sort of oh, force for was. good. Um, yes. Yeah, I never met him, sadly, but I've just heard oh, so many quite stories a about him. Yeah. <laughs> I bet. I mean, but he's always, you always get the question, he certainly encouraged creativity and experimentation in the, in British cheesemakers. He did, yes, yeah, yeah. And he would have a go at anything as well. Like I say, I remember he built a smoker out of an old uh, filing cabinet and uh, and used to, <laughs> to smoke his cheeses in that. And he'd just have a go with one or two. And then if that didn't work, you know, he'd try something different. And, uh, and yeah, you talked about... Great. The fact that he washed the rind of, of your this your rook's nest. So, and Wigmore exists in a washed rind version called Risley, doesn't it? Which, it does. Um, that that's a cheese that Neil's yard affiner really. Um, it's yeah, it's, it is. It's our Wigmore cheese, and then um, they have it sort of naked, and then uh, they make it into a rind washed cheese, uh, which is Risley. Yeah. I, try, I bought some the other day and tried it, and it was really delicious. Did you? So, oh, good. Yeah, lovely. yeah. No, it was lovely. It was That's really... Nice. Um, Thank you. You had a lot of, yeah, a lot of flavour. I mean, while being gentle, I don't know, it was an interesting mix where it was flavourful, but in quite a gentle way. I can't quite just put my finger on it, but yeah. it was really yeah. very nice. Yes, very pleasant to eat. And a nice, you know, one of those cheeses you sort of put your, you have a bit and you go, hmm, I have a little bit more. And, yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> so. Quite different, yeah. <laughs> so when you think back, Anne, and you... There's still not a huge number of used milk cheeses being made in Britain, are they? Do you, I mean, no, there are more, more, a lot more than there used to be. Right. Um, what but, do you think but, of the virtues? Are you, given that you and you see you're working, you work with cow's milk as well as used milk. Yes, do Guernsey you, cows. Yeah. Yes. Which. Um, so how do you? What do you find the differences between the milks? Uh, well, obviously you get a bigger yield from sheep's milk cheese because there's a lot more solids there generally. The fats so you, are higher. The the proteins higher, all the solids are higher, but it costs a lot more. Because our Guernsey milk, for example, is forty p a litre, and our sheep's milk is one pound thirty a litre that we, we have to pay for it. Yeah, yeah. So it is quite, quite a difference. Yes, it takes sort of fourteen litres of sheep's milk to make a two kilo spenwood. Uh, it's, it's quite expensive, but just for the milk alone, for one mm. cheese. Yeah. 
And how long do you would the spend would be matured for? Well, it used to be six months. When we had our smaller maturing room, we were limited to how much we could, could put in there. Um, and so we could only turn it over at about a six-month rate. We then had our extension a couple of years ago, and we've now got it to eight to nine months. And the flavour is, is so much better just for those few extra months. And oh. for our own, for our own use, and a few of our customers have tasted it, we have taken it on to two years just to see Ooh. what it's like. What, what was and it like? Yeah. Amazing. <laughs> was it? But it's I a mean, little bit like wine. You know, you can't guarantee that every cheese you keep for two years will be good. Yeah. You, you've got to kind of do these tastings just like wine and think, mm, yeah, I think that one's going to go on and be good. And and then another one, no, I think that one's got to be sold now. It's good now, but it's not going to go on. I find that so fascinating. Tricky. Yes, I find that whole <laughs> business of choosing which cheeses to mature on. I mean, I, I find it, yes, extraordinary sort of knowledge, really. Um, yeah. yeah, I'm trying to guess. I've been down to um, Jamie Montgomery's um, with Bromley Percival yeah. and watched Bronwyn and Jamie taste the cheeses. And, you know, they're making well, he's similar, choices. Isn't he? yeah. Yeah. yeah, he's got to make that decision. Does it Absolutely. sell young or do we keep it for a bit? Yeah, really Which interesting. I think we will try and keep some a bit longer because it's been quite an interest in people saying, well, just have a very niche, sort of small reserver, you know, amount yes. of cheese, which, which we possibly now we're in a position we could just just maybe do that with a very limited amount. Um, but we're having to actually hold back our spendwood at the moment. We haven't, we haven't, we're not selling any for a few weeks because the age slipped back. And once it does that, once you start selling more now than you made nine months ago, you know, every week, mm. slowly you've realised, oh, the age is slipping younger and younger and we don't want that to happen. So we just right. have a, a period of a few weeks where we don't sell it and then it catches up. And then hopefully right. off we go again. And just have to keep an eye on that. Or yes, actually lose it, that age. They, yes, and so if it's what what does the age? Give? Tell me the difference between the the six months spendwood and then the eight nine months spendwood. What, you know, what what do you taste? What, do you, it, what is it? Well, it, it just sort of everything really. Every flavour there is more enhanced. So the sort of sweetness and the nuttiness comes through more that is there in a younger cheese. And then you start to get a little bit of the sort of uh, more Italian, I think of them as butyric, although bu strong butyric acid, the, the fatty acid, you know, that does give some of those Italian cheeses that real sort of hurriness, if that's mm. a word. <laughs> Good word. I, mean? At the I end, like it. After yes. you've eaten it, you kind of feel like, yeah. <sighs> <laughs> um, that can come through really, really strong, and some Italian cheeses like that, and, and that's the way they're made. But just a just a, a, a small amount of that coming through is is can be a nice flavour, I think, and you just start to get that. And then the dryness as well, a bit like yes. you know, a Parmesan also. Sure. And then the little crystal bits as well start to form, which you always know yes, is I really like old that cheese too. then. Yes, it's a lovely, lovely thing. Well, it's wonderful to have you. What do you one last question? We, you know, looking at the British cheese scene nowadays, given, you know, 35 years on, is it, you know, do you do you see something that's buoyant and interesting and is it lovely to, you know, you've been on a big journey, which I know is a bit of a corny word, but it's, it's true. <laughs> you were there so early on. Is, is it sort of satisfaction to you to, to see, you know, to see what's there now? It is, it is. And now our son and his soon-to-be or would be would have been by now uh, wife oh, yes. are, are yeah. taking over the business. They've been in it now four years and uh, they're introducing other things and, and new cheeses. And, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's lovely to just to see it carrying on because we're still at the back of our house. <laughs> it is actually <laughs> still an outbuilding at the back of our house. So it's, a lot of people are quite surprised we've been going 35 years and they expect to come and see a massive big place and it's, it's not, not that big at all. But I think the nicest thing is that generally young people are definitely taking far more interest in artisan British cheeses than they mm. were 35 years ago. It was definitely an older audience we had then. And they just wanted stronger flavours and mostly hard cheeses. And it was quite an education to get people to think of soft, white, rinded cheeses as being British because they thought that right. was French, Camembert and Brie. Um, and so many people say, oh, is that a camembert style? And you say, well, no, no, it's a washed rind and it's slightly pressed and it's, it, it's completely different, actually. But it, yes. it looks yeah. at, at first glance. Um, but now younger people definitely are coming in and, uh, and buying it and being, being so interested in it as well. That's wonderful. generally. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much, Anne, for taking the time to come and talk to us. Oh, we thank really you. It's a appreciate pleasure. that. <laughs> Lovely. All right, nice Anne. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Online, on smart speakers, and on Listen Again, this is Food FM. Savour the crunch of Peter's Yard sourdough crackers. Available at Waitrose, Sainsbury's, Ocado, Amazon, petersyard.com, and specialist food retailers. 
Very happy to have with me today Selena Cairns of Errington Cheese up in Scotland. Good morning, Selena. Good morning. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I, I really wanted to have Errington Cheese on the show because you've been such a sort of seminal and long part of the British cheese story. It was your father, Humphrey Errington, who started making Lanark Blue. Is that right? Yes. Um, and sort of in the early 1980s, um, he sort of developed an interest um, I think he'd found sort of historical references to people milking sheep around the area. And that's sort of what spiked his interest. Plus, you needed to get um, quotas for milk in that time to milk cows. So sheep, sheep you could just, um, you know, start, I suppose, once right. you had all the equipment and the sheep. Yes, yes. Quite a venture <laughs> to go down, isn't it? That's so interesting. So oh, that's a really practical reason, isn't it, for using sheep's milk? Um, I mean, perhaps we should, before we start talking about Atlantic Blue, perhaps we should have some thoughts about sheep's milk cheeses. Tell me, because I think people don't realise, often don't think, you know, cows are much larger animals than sheep, aren't they? So I'm guessing, you, what, what's the comparison? How much milk would you get from, from a ewe compared to what you'd get from a cow? Yeah, so I think the the sheep have a shorter lactation than a cow, and um, so we lamb them kind of naturally in the spring, um, so sort of February, March, and then they dry off by August. So we've only really got milk for part of the year. Kind of that's one reason, I suppose. There's a bit less milk. Um, yeah. And then obviously early season, you know, they they maybe produce sort of three liters. Well, maybe the good, sort of better yielding sheep's maybe a wee bit more. Um, Gosh. So and then, but it goes much, down. Is it? <laughs> no, no. And so, uh, so even now, I think after the solstice, the summer solstice, they they naturally dry off and they're sort of preparing themselves to have a rest. Right, quite sensible. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and certainly, you know, up up here where it gets quite dark in, in the winter time, um, you know, they, they 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 obviously decide they need a rest. But yeah, so they're producing. I think we get we're getting about four hundred liters a day um, from just over three hundred sheep just now and right. earlier in the season we were the maximum we had was about seven hundred liters a day as far as I remember. Gosh, okay, and but I understand that sheep's milk lends itself well to cheese making. Is that right? It's the king of milk for cheeses. Well, I mean, we've made milk from cow's milk, obviously, over the years, and um, mm. more recently the goat's milk, and you know the yield is amazing from the sheep's milk we sort of get over double the yield from the sheep's milk compared with the goat's milk but oh that is interesting isn't it so yeah yeah but then the goats are producing a lot more milk some of them are producing you know over three liters in one milking so yeah it's swings and roundabouts (laughs) yeah indeed you've got a real overview but let's go back to the lanark blue then which is so what what your father, why did your father make a blue cheese? What was it? Was he thinking of Roquefort, or was that an inspiration? Yeah, I suppose he was just looking at what he thought, what he liked. I suppose I think as a cheesemaker, you have to make some make cheese that you like eating because or else you wouldn't be able to make it very well. Mm. Um, so he obviously enjoyed blue cheese. I mean, it's interesting because there isn't, you know, it's very noticeable as being one of the few, you know blue used milk cheeses in, in Britain but you've obviously but I know you've extended the range perhaps take, take me through the sheep's milk cheeses that you make at Errington's and tell me about them in, in turn so I mean I was looking, I tried some Coraline the other day which was absolutely delicious oh thank you yeah so I think um, we, we kind of make the other cheeses just really to fit with the cycle of the sheep's milk a little bit um, so we're obviously producing a lot of milk in, in the spring when they're producing a lot of milk and so it kind of makes sense to use that milk into a cheese that keeps really well. So the Coraline kind of evolved from from that, I suppose. Um, well, going back to the blue cheese, we 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 make we make that throughout the lactation of the sheep, um, and we we store it at a cooler temperature to sort of help it stop it going too strong for sort of Christmas and January yeah. time. Right, and then we use the the Coraline uses up, you know, helps us space out the milk a bit. If you see what mm-hmm. I mean, so that we we tend to mature that for at least a year, and it's more like a, a cheddar style recipe um, that we've sort of developed over the years with a bit of help from well, Val Bynes was helped us a lot with ah, it. Um, yes. and it's, got, it's, got, it's got a lovely. Um, it did have that lovely sort of nuttiness, you know, that I would chew it, you know, which you know, even though it, it looks, I suppose, like a cheddar, but it does. It's got a very different sort of flavour flavour set to it. Yeah, so I suppose milk. it's a bit. Yeah. yeah, it's a bit drier than a cheddar, and it doesn't have the same 
sharpness cow's milk can have sometimes it, it sort of caramelizes as it as it matures um, and it's a bit sweeter and i obviously think it's more interesting but i'm a biased towards a sheep's milk <laughs> <laughs> then the other um we make a wee bit of lanark white um which is more like a sort of pecorino-ish style kind of not matured oh. as long as the the coralin but we mainly just sell that at the farmer's market um, i was going to say i don't think i've tried it which is one of these interesting points that like, yeah. don't you know i'm here in london i've had some of your cheeses but certainly not all of your cheeses just because you know they don't always travel all over but i suppose you know moving online which is you know one of the results of the pandemic isn't it that people cheese are, are more available online than they used to be which is sort of really exciting actually if you love love cheese it gives you a lot of options for ordering yeah no not many of the um cheesemongers have lanark white in london i don't think i'm afraid but i could bring you some down next time my sister lives down there um and then <laughs> well, and then the other the other little cheese we make is um a little lactic one called lancelot after my grandfather and that was just to use up little surpluses of milk here and then and i quite like the style of it it's just a very fresh um, cheese i think i've seen that in it looks very pretty i've seen it in nils dairy yeah and tell me about your your sheep your because you've got is it lacown i don't even know how to pronounce it is it lacown <laughs> yeah, everybody pronounces it but differently <laughs> how I, call, you pronounce I, it, I call them lacones yeah so they're dairy lacone okay. yeah right. um right. or look but our, our consultant um our you know sheep consultant calls them lacones so I don't oh, okay. know. He's maybe he's maybe right. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, whatever they yeah. call. Do you have? Tell me about what what are they? they I see that name. Is, is, I think Martin got has got them as well, hasn't he? The same. Yeah, I think breed. they're they're popular for um, if you're making cheese with the milk um, because they they produce milk that's sort of better quality for for cheese. You know, it's, high, it's a bit higher in solids. And for us, because we're we're further north, they're just a bit more robust being kind of from the mountains a bit mm. more we just like them they they, they seem to have a, a more of a longevity <laughs> their feet are better and their udders are better they don't produce as much milk as sort of some of the alternatives like frisians but um they work for us um oh, and so we yeah, yeah we've had, my husband sort of we'd have to go to france every few years and buy some tops just to freshen up our um yes, our lines which right. um it's probably not going to be that easy going forward, but... Oh, well, um, yes, yeah, quite. That's a whole different world, isn't it? <laughs> yes. You know, often when you talk about milk and, and cheese and, and raw milk, we should make this point that you are, you know, you absolutely, all your cheeses are made from unpasteurised milk. And that's very mm. central to your whole philosophy, isn't it? Do you want to tell me a little bit about why? Was that something always that your father always wanted to do? Um, if you want to make the best cheese, you have to have the best milk. And obviously you have to produce it to a higher standard than you perhaps would if you were just making milk to go into the liquid pool. So... For us, we're very small and it's fam. You know, my husband runs the, the sheep and I do the cheese with Angela, my sister-in-law. Um, so we've got full control over it. Um, mm. And so I think that the cheese as a result is, you know, it's more cared about right the way through the whole process. You know, we're absolutely, you know, everything we do with the management of the sheep and the grass and everything is, um, you know, was done with complete care. <laughs> Well, you know, that's what to make cheese, yeah. Yes. yeah. Well, that's right. I was really interested in this whole picture, you know, because it's it's all very, you know, it's very easy for me to, you know, just go and buy a little bit of cheese. And of course, you know, I have no sense of the, unless I start really thinking about it, I have no sense of the work that's gone into that cheese. But it's, it's not just the cheese, it's the milk, isn't it? It's, it's, a, it's the work that the that you're doing to look after your livestock in order to get mm -hmm. the milk for cheese. So it sounds like you are, that is something you're very aware of then. Yeah, I think that's your, as a cheesemaker, that's your primary thing you know no matter what because if you if you've got milk that's not you know the, the cleanest and the other health of the animals isn't the best then no matter what you do to it further down the process it's never going to taste sort of clean and fresh with nice flavors mm. um so the milk is the most important thing and i don't think we could make good cheese without it so tell me perhaps talk me through the making of one of your cheeses perhaps either lanark blue or coralin it'd be really interesting to hear actually how it's how they're made yeah so the the, the we've got sort of the old farm buildings are converted into cheese buildings and then we've got a parlor just um i don't know it's five meters away or something so then the milk um obviously gets goes into the bulk tank and then the morning and even the evening from the night before milk gets pumped across at seven o'clock in the morning where we start the cheese and we warm it up and add our 
starter cultures and then depending on what cheese we make it varies a wee bit <laughs> after yes. that but um yeah so we we um once the starter cultures are activated we add our rennet um so we use um, vegetarian rennet for the lanark blue we use um sheep traditional uh, lamb's rennet for the coralline. It tasted quite lammy, I thought, when I tried the coralline. It was <laughs> yeah, in a really nice way, in that sort of that sort of nutty, savoury. Yeah, I did get well, a so, yeah, It's very interesting. It. Yeah. yeah, we we started using vegetarian rennet with the coralline, and then we realised um, it. We made sort of the odd batch over the years, and then we decided we're just going to have to buy the bullet because it tastes better. With so yeah, 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 it's very interesting um, the difference. Um, isn't that fascinating? Yeah, I mean, you, yeah. you know, yes, all these differences in make and then, you know, and then the end result. So, yeah. Yeah, so we then um, drain the way off, um, some of which gets sort of spread in the fields from the slurry tank and some goes to some pigs. Mm. Um, and, you know, the moulds are filled and then we basically turn the moulds during the day to drain more and more way out. And then they're left overnight um to drain a bit further and they're salted the following afternoon, the Lanark Blue. Um, they were, they're placed on racks and um, yeah, they're pierced at seven days and then we leave them on the racks, you know, at the maturing room the temperature. The piercing is to allow the veining, isn't it? Which is sort of its characteristic, is to let yeah. the air into it, that, to create the bluing, I suppose, in the cheese. That, that's right, yeah. yeah. Um, and then we wrap them in foil at three weeks and move them to a cooler a room until they're ready for sale. So probably two months to, and then depending, you know, at Christmas time, it could be five, six months, you know, Christmas time in January. Yes. And that's just literally to do with when you've had access to milk in a way, isn't it? If you're, if, if yeah. the sheep are drying off, then yeah, then you've got to, and then, <laughs> I mean, yes, there you are. You've got to wait some months for Christmas to come. So. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, it is possible to lamb them in September, but I mean, my, my father did try it and it just, you have to sort of create artificial environments and it didn't really work up here because it's so dark. But right. I mean, I know that some people in the south of England do it. <laughs> but yes. yeah, we, we just like to stick to the kind of natural rhythm of the sheep, yes. I suppose. Yeah, um, that's really coming across actually hearing you talk, you know, the patterning of, of, a, of a year, you know, with the seasons and the, that cycle of sort of milk production and milk use. I mean, I we had um, Rory Mellis on the programme um, because I wanted an insight into the sort of Scottish cheese scene. And obviously mm. your name, you know, comes up and your father's name very quickly once I start talking about Scottish cheesemakers. And do you feel, if you've, got a, you've obviously created over these decades, you must have a really loyal following for your cheeses in Scotland, mm. but also I'm guessing, you know, but not just in Scotland. Is that rewarding for you? Yeah, we're really, really lucky, yeah. And, you know... Um... Mellis particularly have been, you know, a great support over the last few years um, and further back since we started. Well, well, I think they maybe started just after us, mm. um, but pretty, certainly yes. they've been one of our, you know, main customers for years and years. So, and yes, yeah, they're quite nice because we we see them in Edinburgh. Obviously, when we drop cheese off, and you don't get to see many people that often you know to keep to keep in contact in the same way which is good so they're a kind of local local yeah. cheesemonger how nice yeah i mean it is that great relationship it's so interesting with the, the role that cheesemongers have as showcases for for cheeses you know and and they have the opportunity to showcase local cheeses obviously which is really striking yeah well it was lovely to thank you selena for coming on the program it was really lovely to talk to you because I, I know i love your cheeses and it's so nice to have errington cheese on the show thank you very much well thank you for having me Online, on smart speakers, and on Listen Again. This is Food FM. Savour the crunch of Peter's Yard sourdough crackers. Available at Waitrose, Sainsbury's, Ocado, Amazon, petersyard.com, and specialist food retailers. So this morning on A Slice of Cheese, I'm very happy to have with me Ben Harris of Ticklemore Cheese Dairy. Ben makes three blue cheeses and one of the cheeses Beanly Blue which was a very early sort of pioneering blue sheep's milk cheese in in Britain. Good morning Ben. Good morning thank you for having me. It's lovely to have you and I really wanted you on the show because you know Beanly Blue it was Robin Congdon wasn't it who started making tell, tell us the story it was such an unusual thing to be making a a blue sheep's milk cheese or ewe's milk cheese? So Robin actually it was the late 80s he started making Beanly. Right. Uh, he had the idea 
he had heard of somebody milking sheep in England and liked the idea, so he um, bought a small holding and bought 11 British Frieslands from a place in Kent that had some. And to start with, he was making yoghurt that he was taking up to Randolph when he first had a shop at Neil's Yard, which Robin used to load into his old 2CV and taking all the seats out of um, <laughs> and take it up once a week. But I think as things progressed, Robin decided that yoghurt didn't really keep too well and it was very much he had to deliver it very quickly. Mm. So he wanted to make a cheese and he settled on a blue cheese and he wanted to make something that was different to a traditional British cheese, like sort of a Stilton. Yep. So he used something along the lines of a Roquefort recipe. Right. And it developed from there, really. Amazing. And I mean, it's interesting because I think, you know, it was sheep's milk, goat's milk. It was, they were very considered very unusual, you know, in the you know the late 80s, early. It was still a sort of novelty factor, wasn't there? So it must have been quite... So as far as I understand it, he's sort of of that new wave of the British wave of cheese making. He was the first to be making a sheep's blue think, cheese. Yeah, I think that's right. So he had his own sheep here then on a small little... He had moved to near where we are now in Totnes. And so, yes, he was very much a pioneer. I think he was the first person. And to start with, he had his own sheep and made the cheese. And then as it progressed along the years, it became easier as the other cheeses, he started making the other cheeses that he gave up keeping the animals and we sourced our milk locally. Right. And when, when, do, you, when do you join the dairy, Ben? How, how many years ago was that? So 19, I joined in 2002. I had a mixed, little bit of a mixed career. I left school and I trained as a chef and I worked in a renowned local restaurant with Joyce Molyneux and Nick Coyley. Carved Angel, um, which is a wonderful restaurant. Oh, I mean, it was such a special place. It must have been amazing. It was. It was very different, yes. especially down in this area at that time. Mm. I even made some cheese with Joyce at the time, which Did you? Wasn't, wasn't edible. <laughs> I, prior to that, I grew up on a dairy farm across the river in Kingswear. And my right. parents had a small little herd of 40 Frisians. So I'd had an inkling into making cheese and we used to sell Robin's cheese in the restaurant. I remember serving it in the front of the house. right. And I didn't really like being inside cooking all the time. So I tried a few other things and I happened to come across somebody who's looking, they were looking for work here. So I started being sort of driver and um, processing milk and then moved up to cheesemaker. Wonderful. I've been here ever since. And the interesting thing is you are making three blues using three different milks, aren't you? So or cow's milk and sheep's milk and goat's milk. You've got the three different milks, cows, goats and ewes. What do you, so do, do you find that they behave very differently because you're making, you know, a blue cheese with each of them? That must be fascinating. You've got a real hands-on uh, sense of the differences of the milk. Yeah, they are all very different. You get used to it, I suppose, but the themselves the making bean leaf from the sheep's milk the curds sort of so lovely and bouncy and feels nice whereas the harbon curds a bit drier making our cheeses a little drier more crumbly and That's then you've the got the sort of milk here yes yeah. and then devon blue from cow's milk we've got sort of very rich buttery milk here and that comes across in the cheese how interesting and so obviously sourcing the milk you know that's very important for any cheesemaker the milk they use so do you have a long is there a farmer that you work with closely in order to get their you know, that you were using their milk? Yeah, we try and work with all of our milk sources quite closely. Our sheep's milk has been coming from Tom and Helen Garland. They've recently moved to Woodbury near Exeter, so they're quite close to us now. Um, and we've all been getting milk from them for about nine years. Right. Um, with their move, they are now going to be keeping some cows, so we're going to get cow's milk from them as well. Oh, that's nice. Brilliant. Well, take, could you talk us through how Beanley Blue is made? And, and yes, I'd just love to, to hear that story. Yeah, of course. So we the milk comes into the dairy and goes into our processor milk. We warm up, we do pasteurise because we're buying our milk in. Yeah. So we process the milk, it goes into the vat, and then it is a very continental recipe. It's quite different to a Stilton. It has cuts by hand, and then it's stirred by hand, and then we gently ladle the curd out of the vat into moulds uh, where it begins its maturation process. So after that first moulding, it gets a couple dry salts, before being spiked, and then it goes into what we call our cave. It's a bit loose shed? cave. <laughs> yes. in, it's more of a cold room that's kept humid and yeah. about nine to 10 degrees. And um, you mentioned spiking there, Ben. That's to encourage the blueing. That's letting the air into the cheese. Is that right? Piercing the cheese too, in order to get the, the blueing. So we right. put a penicillin rock 48 in the milk, um, mm -hmm. which starts waking up as soon as you put it in. And then, but they it needs air in the cheese for that to grow. Right. Uh, so we, spike our cheeses we put 37 holes down through the top of the cheese our cheeses are spiked from the end because they sit upright in the cave like rockfall would be 
as opposed right. to Stilton would be spiked from the sides because they stand on their end. Right, that's interesting. And so that's that, you know, that Stilton analogy or comparison is quite interesting. So there are yes. two different cheeses. So a beanie blue next to a Stilton, what I've had some, it's, it's lovely. It's sort of salty, sweet and rich and soft. I mean, it seemed to me a little bit, even though I always buy the Colston Bassett Stilton, which is creamy, but I got the I got the feeling that your beanie blue was sort of a bit more moist somehow, or I can't quite. It's a bit more moist, a bit more crumbly, yeah. yeah. So cheese, how long do you mature it for? So they stay in our cave for about three weeks until the um, blue penicillin is grown. Mm-hmm. Before they come out, they're lightly rubbed and then go into our maturation fridges for probably at least three months. Okay, gosh, um, that's quite a long time. Because the cheese, uh, milk is quite seasonal, we will sometimes keep them up to a year old. Wow. What happens when it, you know, comparison between a younger beanly and then a year old beanly? What, what are they, what happens? So a young beanly at three months has sort of got that yogurty, fresh taste, still quite crumbly as opposed to a year old they get much more minerally very robust and what and obviously you know lots of people now know beanie blue i mean you've you know robin was sort of trailblazing really and has created you've also got a following do lots do people have sort of prefer, you know at christmas would you have an old you know would you mature some beanie to have you know to have a year old beanie you know for, for the christmas table or, or is it not does it not work like that it probably works in the fact that we get the majority of our milk in january february time so by christmas we would have cheeses at other age and they're oldest then yes right um, but that's more because it happens to work like yeah that. it happened to work out that way yes perfect yeah yeah and in the years that i've been writing about food there's been this real uh i've sort of witnessed this rise of british cheese making you know new cheeses being, being made and and then also an you know, and they say british cheeses as opposed to french cheeses appearing on restaurant menus you know with a real sense of pride so presumably your 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 cheeses get you know, do appear or, or are used by chefs and, and restaurants. Yeah, more and more so. If I've never had a beanie blue, what would you tell me about it or how would you describe its its flavour and texture to me? Say it's creamy, with a minerally piquant taste, mm. lovely on crackers with a bit of fig chutney. Ah, so really, and, and so the other two blues that you make, are they, yes. they've got different flavours then because of the different milk. I was just trying to sort of explore the sense of the, of the milk, you know, do sheep's, often sheep's milk cheese, I find a sort of nuttiness to it. Um, to the flavour. Very much. I think the beanie has that sort of nutty, minerally taste. Sometimes a tiny bit lanolin-y oh, yes. taste. Yes, you do. Um, yeah. Whereas a Devon Blue has a very much more buttery and creamy. Right. From the cow's milk, and our yeah. Harborn Blue is quite crumbly, a little dry, with less of a blue taste. We kind of try and have less blue in our Harborn. So, I suppose the interest for you making the cheese is that you know you're working with milk with, with these farmers, and you mentioned that you're you're now beginning some cow's milk. So that'll be so working with that with the new cow's milk supplier. Presumably, you sort of see you will actually taste that that difference in the in the milk in the cheeses. Yes, I hope so. In fact, initially the milk seems to be breaking down. There's a lot of blue in the Devon blue we're getting from our new milk. But you've obviously got the cheese making bug then. So and so is it Ben? I don't know if you ever meet people. You know, at the, I don't know if you ever go out and sell the cheese at farmers markets, or if you ever get other moments when you feel proud of what you do. You know, when somebody tries your cheese and you think, and then they like. Is that is that a nice feeling for you? That's a lovely feeling. I think that sort of makes a job. I don't do very many shows, but I do some. And then we have people like Neil Jard come and select cheese. And when they select and things are tasting good, there's sort of that's the best feeling ever, really. Ah, yeah. that's lovely. Makes yeah, it all worthwhile. Brilliant. Well, listen, thank you so much, Ben, because I know how busy you are. So it was really kind of you to take the time to talk to us. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you very much for having me. Online, on smart speakers and on Listen Again, this is Food FM. Savour the crunch of Peter's Yard sourdough crackers. Available at Waitrose, Sainsbury's, Ocado, Amazon, petersyard.com and specialist food retailers. Very happy to have with me today Stefano Vallabona of Vallibona, who import and sell wonderful sort of Italian foods that are seriously tempting, charcuterie, but of course, cheeses. And so, Stefano, good morning. Good morning, Jenny. It's lovely to talk to you again. And I wanted you on this programme, Stefano, because we're looking at sheep's cheese. And I felt that we really, we should talk about Italy's sort of sheep cheese tradition in the form of pecorino, which is such a, a famous Italian cheese and it's a cheese which exists in such a regional way through Italy and you are from Sardinia aren't you Steph? Yes I born and bred there and uh, moved back to London when I was 30 about 23 years ago. One of the in fact there is a pecorino sardo a Sardinian pecorino so tell us about this tradition of of sheep's milk cheeses in 
in Italy. Perhaps, perhaps we'll start in. So it, 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 it exists in different forms, isn't there? There's Pecorino Toscano, Pecorino Romano. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So pe- Pecora means uh, sheep, and Pecorino it means uh, uh, cheese made by uh, sheep milk. Mm-hmm. As you said, uh, there are lots of different uh, Pecorino in, uh, made in different parts of Italy. Uh, Sardinia probably is one of the uh, biggest uh, producer, just because the in Sardinia, we have a lot of sheep, more than probably people. And uh, <laughs> they like, uh, the sheep like the, you know, the, the terroir, the, the, the weather, and is the main uh, production. Uh, we have very little cows, uh, probably almost none, you know, uh, goats, but a lot of sheep. Uh, so it's, we are in, a, the, the island is, um, as probably everybody knows, it's quite it's based it's next to Corsica. We are in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, weather is very hot. Uh, the the culture uh, of the the, pico, the the cheese making uh, is apparently come from uh, Palestinian. So it uh, goes back to about three thousand years ago. And uh, right. the whole island, uh, once you drive through or, or if you got the chance to visit. You, you can only see uh, lots of sheep, uh, lots of very dry in the summer, a little bit greener during the, the, the winter times and months and uh, in the spring. Uh, and uh, so the milk uh, there get transformed by shepherds uh, that have a long history, family tradition. Um, in these days, a little bit harder to, because obviously it's so tempting to buy milk from um, outside so there is a lot of production made with milk not um, that comes from uh, from uh, Holland and etc but oh, okay. me, my you know I, 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 this is where I really you know my strong relationship with uh, makers uh, uh, as you, you know I'm the third generation of a family they've been working with a very a small group of uh, cheesemakers in in Sardinia and uh, and, uh, and also in other parts of Italy. Uh, we have a very strong connection in there, and so we are the main importers of pecorino in uh, UK. And so pecorino sardo. So in fact, I was interested the different types of pecorino, these regional variations. Mm-hmm. Are, do they differ from each other, or is it just you know are they a similar cheese but made in a different part of Italy? So hence in a court. Always, or are they sold at different ages? You know, tell me, take me through some of the sort of unpick the sure. pecorino. <laughs> yes. Probably the big big families are in terms of yeah. You have you know pecorino sardo, which means from Sardinia is also a DOP, so it's uh-huh. the origin protect. Then you have uh, pecorino romano, which is uh, for some reason the the DOP uh, took this name, but then ninety percent of the production is made in Sardinia and ten oh. percent is made in Rome. Oh, I um, okay. For some strange reason, the, 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 right. the pecorino sardo is about three and a half kilo uh, right. in weight, where the pecorino uh, tos, uh, romano is about thirty-five kilo. Uh, mm-hmm. So it's a lot of, it's a much bigger, bigger. cheese. Yeah. In the old days, it used to be made in this way because you can. The, 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 my main market for pecorino romano for, for many years was uh, the states, and then you also find a little bit of pecorino in Tuscany. They are mainly uh, shepherds. Uh, uh, Sardinian shepherds, they, they at some point they decide to uh, migrate to uh, Tuscany, so the, the Sar name is very Sardinian, like Puzzolu. There's a lot of uh, producers now that have been there for like two or three generations. Some want to formerly be longer, but again, they, they, there were Sardinian families of shepherds that decide to go in a greener. Uh, the, the, quality, the style is very different. Uh, they yes. tend to, in Tuscany, they tend to have a, a smaller cheese with about a kilo. The shape, yeah. the, the shape is slightly different. The, the climate is a lot uh, cooler compared yeah. to Sardinia, so that they don't have to treat the rind. Um, they tend to sell cheese in between one and uh, three months. Where in Sardinia, you can find cheeses that they, they have a couple of months, but also you go, they, 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 we mature them there up to uh, a year, a year and a half. Oh, okay. Gosh, they can take that time. Right. That's and, interesting. Uh, and Sicily also, there is a definitely a little bit of production there uh, for things like canestrato or there are some interesting things like saffron and peppercorns pecorino or ah. pecorino and nesek which is completely yellow with this uh, 
nice interest in peppercorns in the middle. But the, they are very small production and less, less, less no, uh, well-known, the Sardinian uh, right. pecorino, which is, I think now has been exported all over the world and a little bit are the, the main player on the type of cheese. What, and so pecorino sardo. So what? What sort of? It, what, what's the texture like? I mean, or is it sold at different ages? Would, it, would you know? Would you have a young, fresh one, or, or, or you know, and then immediately? Yes, you have a, sure. Yeah. Sure, sure. The the so the, the probably when it's younger, um, which is about two a couple of months, the texture is uh, is quite springy and. Um, mm -hmm. One one of the things that I wanted to say just before uh, tell you exactly you know that describing the texture and the you know obviously the age more older become crumblier yeah and spicy etc. But the what it was is, was really interesting is the when you get a pecorino made from milk produced in Sardinia you know the the, the aroma the, the obviously the the, the animal that grazes oh. uh, uh, it's it's incredible you know the the, the flavors. The, the amount of um, uh, the fat content is incredibly high. And the reason why I'm telling you this is because one of the uh, most popular way to uh, enjoy pecorino is grilling. It's putting on searing on, on, on a, a non-stick pan or on fire pit or it's basically with, a, with as soon as you, you put a, um, closer to heat um, sources, it's, it's done melting it's kind of a fondue and the, at that point you realize a good pecorino how much the amount of oil which is omega-3 which is also the, the, the very similar to uh, you know the oil that you you find in uh, in mackerel and yeah so super it's healthy fish yeah exactly and uh, the another another thing is about sardinia which is i think i find it very fascinating is uh, about probably six seven eight years ago some scientists realized that sardinia was one of these blue zones where people were living a lot longer than anywhere else in in the planet there is also Japan in Okinawa, mm. or there is a place in uh, in Florida. But and it, it was interesting because everybody, all these people, had completely different diet. So the Japanese, they were eating more fish and vegetable. The Sardinian, they were eating lots of pecorino and drinking lots of red wine, mm. uh, and etc. etc. So it was in the beginning that everybody thought it was the kind of DNA related. This is why yeah. there was a very little diseases and lots of longevity was incredible. Um, but the was actually the diet. So they, they reckon the yes that that was one of the secrets of the sardine. Good. So, so yeah. we should all be eating lots of pecorino. I think uh, in moderation. <laughs> we'll all live a long time. Yeah. I think in moderation, <laughs> but the definitely is uh, when you. When you have got access to a good quality uh, pecorino, I think is uh, definitely you're gonna take apart uh, the super enjoyable flavor. You have uh, you know an, an amount of properties that is very good for you. And um, in fact, one of the things I I've had in Tuscany where I lived was uh, pecorino with with fresh beans. You know, um, yes, with broad beans. Um, and it was that, and it was a very gentle. It was a pecorino fresco, basically. So would that be? I was just trying to get my head around different ages. So could you have a pecorino toscano sold at different ages, or is pecorino toscano often yes, young? Yes, you do have a you have a pecorino in Tuscany. You have pecorino. Uh, they, 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 the size of the wheels is a bit smaller. They're yeah. about one and a half to kilo, comparing the sardo, which is a, is about almost double. Mm. But the yeah, when, as soon as you make cheese, you have a younger cheese that can be consumed after probably a month and a half. Yeah. And then uh, when you prepare the the wheel, so you you treat the rind uh, in a certain way, and you prepare the cheese in a certain way, you you, you get you able to to mature it for a um, lot longer. So you do find in Sardinia and in Tuscany, you know the. It's either younger, which is, is what you described with the broad beans is, is yeah is absolutely fantastic way to mm -hmm. enjoy when the broad beans are in season. Uh, pecorino and broad beans is, is a fantastic uh, combination. We also find a very similar way to enjoy in in uh, Genoa in, in, in Liguria oh. is is incredible. It's one of the signature dish. They also eat salami with the pecorino broad beans. It's a very, very Genoa, Genoa style in that right. specific period when the, 
the 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 broad beans are super sweet it's and you can take it's them off. It's a seasonal the pleasure, then, isn't it? And so the pickle exactly. in asado. What would you? So how would that be eaten, Stefano? Are there particular ways? I mean, probably the, the majority. I think it's probably two different ways. You know, when it's younger, you can you you grill it. That there's like the, the yes, is uh, and then when it's mature, you grate it like a oh, parmesan. Okay. Right. And would you, in fact, we discussed, I, I did a program on Parmigiano and Rachel Roddy was on it and she was, we were discussing, pe- because she's in Rome, we were talking about Pecorino Romano mm-hmm. and Parmigiano, and the different times she used them. It was quite interesting, you know, and the different dishes. So it would be a grating cheese then to to add flavour to, to pasta then, the, the, yes, the, more, the exactly. older. Right. Yeah. It's Pecorino tends to be probably a little bit, the aroma comparing the Parmesan, which is cow, um, is very different. I, yes. I come from my mother, for example, she likes mixing the two. The two, oh, you know, no. when it's in a grated yes, form, yes. Yeah. have both mixed and then serve, sprinkle. But the, definitely uh, you do have, um, it's a different, completely different perception in the mouth. And you can, depends on the recipe, I would say Pecorino has, you know, at the moment, for example, we are just realized here in the UK, people are obsessed in, on um, making carbonara, with one yes. child, yes. And, uh, yes. and obviously that and it has to be pecorino romano, yeah. which is tossolter and yeah. have a, a proper bucatino uh, pasta. I think it's it's, uh, it's fantastic to see how how many people wanted to now the one the guanciale and pecorino romano is the the they are available uh, in on the market. The we sell a lot to people have obviously they they, they want to substitute the the, the pancetta and yeah. the and maybe the parmesan, which is what we used to, the parmigiano, what we used to be, you know, now they are available, those two ingredients. Everybody wants to have the real, the yes, raw dish. Yeah. I in, mean, it's, uh, it is fascinating. Like, I mean, obviously, Stefano, you've been so involved in bringing, introducing ingredients to people in Britain. It, it is really, that's why I want to talk to people who do import and sell cheeses because i think it's so interesting they play such a big part in expanding our our repertoire of, of ingredients so um well that was wonderful thank you stefano well i know you're very busy i really appreciate you taking the time thank you for coming on the thank show. you really nice talking to you jenny as usual lovely thank you ciao ciao, ciao, ciao. <laughs> to find out more about food fm and our content go to foodfmradio.com thank you so much for listening to a slice of cheese i hope you've enjoyed it If you have enjoyed it, it would be lovely if you could rate us on wherever you've found this podcast. It will make such a difference to us. So I hope you'll enjoy us again. Thank you very much.